Hello and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Greetings, Stan, JP, listeners. We are so glad to have you here with us today. Today, we are continuing our conversation about substance dualism and how this belief shapes our beliefs in several key areas. The first of those being the area of ethics. Our days are filled with ethical decisions. I'd like to hear from you, JP, about the areas you think Christians should be especially aware of where substance dualism would impact our ethical decisions. Well, it's difficult to make sense out of how we could have a whole lot of value if I am my body, and if you take my body as a chunk of matter. It's just, suppose we take the body to be purely physical. It's hard to see how a material object, no matter how complicated it is, is worth a whole lot, except for maybe its functional ability, you know, a car. So I have extraordinarily high value. And uh, just to give a little thought experiment, suppose people were torturing me psychologically. They were intimidating me. They were demeaning me, mocking me, and say things to me that brought me trauma and depression. (sighs) Now, suppose that I died and there there was an afterlife where we could exist without our bodies. Suppose that was actually true. I think it is, but let's just suppose it is. And then suppose that there were people that treated me the same way in the afterlife, even though I existed without a body. So they weren't physically trawling me, but they were saying things to me, insulting me or whatever. I claim that that would be every bit as evil as if they were doing it to me on this earth, which shows that the, the body is its presence or absence doesn't make a difference to that kind of thing. Now, of course, there are certain things you have to have a body for to have certain kind of pain. So uh, I do believe the body as a Christian and otherwise has incredible value, but it's not as a piece of matter. It's because I am a living soul uh, of a certain kind that, that I would say bears the image of God Uh, that gives all of us equal value simply as human persons. Stan, any thoughts? From what JP summarized, if we're just a machine, then our value must be defined only by our functional ability. And there are huge ethical implications to this view at every stage of life. In terms of the beginning of life, for example, abortion for convenience becomes okay. Uh, abortion of those who some have deemed uh, undesirable uh, in some way is okay. Uh, gene editing, aka designer babies being produced, uh, is 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 all of a sudden okay. The sterilization of women in India is okay. Uh, infanticide is okay. There are so many of these implications that. That if we're just functional, we've got to say, yeah, that's that's fine. But we know deep down that these these things are wrong. We we just know we're more than our bodies. That we have value that's not defined by our functional ability, but uh, are grounded in who we are as souls. The same is true concerning ethical issues during life. It determines how we and our societies treat those with mental limitations. 
there are huge ethical implications related to, to eugenics. For instance, the Nazis program was grounded in a view that denied intrinsic value of all people. But we see these things as morally reprehensible. But it's because we understand that we have a soul that ultimately gives us value. And it's not our functional capacities. Take issues at the end of life. In a lot of countries, it's becoming common to euthanize the elderly. Uh, they're no longer contributing to society. Their functional capacities have diminished. And now they're a quote-unquote drain on society, taking up valuable resources. So because in those societies, there's not a sense that people are intrinsically valuable due to their soul, it's morally appropriate to end their lives and therefore to free up more resources for the quote-unquote more productive members of society. And again, these things are all morally egregious, and I think we all know that. But if we come to be convinced that we are not a soul with a body, that we are primarily a body, then these are the natural implications that we have to both live with and begin to endorse. So at all stages of life, our view of what it means to be human has huge implications and dire consequences if we get it wrong. How do these decisions impact us? Or how might we be participating in these decisions in ways we aren't aware of? I'll give you another historical example that Stan uh, really wisely pointed out about eugenics. You know, a good death according to certain human beings being in, inferior this is not a theoretical question, because uh, from about 1910 up until about 1925, eugenics was regularly practiced all over the United States. And so people were forced to be sterilized. They were forced by the government to undergo sterilization if they were alcoholics or prostitutes uh, or had some other physical defect. Ordinary people were taught that this was an appropriate way to deal with people that were functionally deviant or physically defective. And, and this was based on Darwinism. And Darwin was very clear that the processes of evolution are purely material. They can't give rise to any kind of immaterial self or consciousness. And so whether the average person in Ohio realized it or not, it was the Darwinian survival of the fittest, and these aren't fit, and the materialist view that undergirded this whole eugenics movement. The very worst state in the United States that did this most uh, joyfully was the state of California. Interestingly, it was the most secular state. And the minutes that were taken in Sacramento and when the state representatives met to discuss this were actually cited by the Nazis in justification of their eugenics program. So they used the state of California's own statements. Now, by contrast, there was one state that led the fight against this and eventually won. It was the state of Louisiana. Now, why did they win? There was a, an extremely articulate, well-informed Catholic priest who knew a lot of people in the state assembly in Louisiana. 
And he went in there into their state assembly meetings while they debated this, and he argued and contended for the equal dignity of everyone So, because there, we were at God's image. And that was the difference between dispersing the eugenics movement, believing that we were souls made in the image of God, versus a Darwinian materialist view that provided a cultural context within which this was an easy sell. So the point is that the average person needs to realize that these ideas actually impact their children, their families, and all the rest of it, even if they don't know that that's going on. I would say one other thing, and that is, I think that there's a tendency for us to value favored people over other groups. It is a regular practice for doctors to recommend abortion once they discover the woman is carrying a Down syndrome baby. But I had, I don't know how many couples I have met that had kept their baby and they will tell you that while there are a lot of hardships, there's no question that one of their greatest blessings is their little son or daughter, who may be 35 at that time, and the joy that they have brought to that family. And you have a human being, a human person there. Uh, so that that's an example. Stan, you have others, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, two other examples come to mind right away. Uh, Just last week, I was having coffee with a friend of mine. He's a pastor. And a number of years ago, his wife and he were trying to start their family and found they were struggling with infertility. And so they were exploring options and they were counseled to pursue in vitro fertilization, which they did. They implanted an embryo. The implantation was successful. And then they destroyed the other embryos. And later, he realized that he had taken innocent life and uh, mourns that to this day. And he wished he would have thought about more or somebody would have pointed out some of these issues so he could have thought better about what his understanding of human life and the essence of a person actually is. A second example is the laws that we vote on that have some connection to biology are always grounded in our view of the human person. For instance, if the soul causes the body, like we talked about in the last episode, then souls are essentially gendered. And this has huge implications in contemporary conversations around gender identity and quote-unquote transgendered individuals. So I'd actually say every ethical issue connected to biology is at its core a question of what are we Uh, JP, do you think that's fair? Well, I think you're spot on. We've said before, when the Bible died, God died. And when God died, man died. And uh, that's the history of the last 400 years of Western society. So now the fundamental question that is at issue in the popular culture and in the university is what are we? What is a human being or human person? Let me just pick up on one thing, Jordan, to clarify. I believe the body is incredibly valuable, because, but, but I don't think it's purely physical. I think the body ha- is ensouled. And so the body is valuable because it's a physical soulish structure. I think it's also valuable because it has all kinds of aesthetic properties of uh, beauty and other things. 
Uh, and th those aesthetic properties are not themselves physical, like color and, and, and symmetry and things of that sort. I think another reason the body is valuable is because it is indwelt and inhabited and owned by a possessor. And I think that that makes it extremely valuable insofar as it is someone's mode of expressing themselves. So that if I would to look at my daughter, suppose my daughter passed away, um, to be sure uh, there's a corpse there, there's no longer a real body. But still, there would be a value that was more than just the matter of that corpse, because that corpse was the, was the vehicle through which I was able to read her emotions, through her facial uh, communication and all sorts of things. So uh, th th those are some of the reasons why I have a high regard for the value of the body, but they have nothing to do with it being strictly material. Mm. Another reason, if you don't mind me elaborating on this a little bit more, is let's suppose that uh, some kind of Barclayan idealism is true, which is basically the idea that there are selves or souls, but there is no such thing as matter. The world is, the, is out there and it's the way it is. Uh, it, it, you know, if you push a tree, it's still going to push back and there's hardness and color and so on. It's just that there's no ultimate physical substrate that underlies these, what they call sensory properties. Now, the point would be then that if that is the way the world is, and it, come, it might be, there are a lot of Christians that think it is. Now, I'm not among them, but, but their view isn't crazy. Uh, if that were true, the body would still be tremendously valuable, but it wouldn't be material. So I don't think the body matters more in a world I believe in, I, if it were just physical, not as a Christian, versus a Barclayan world where the body is not physical. I think they, the body would, would uh, be kind of the same either way. So pure physicality, I don't think, has a whole lot to do with why the bodies are valuable. I do want to mention two books, JP, you've written on these topics that I think are just so helpful and our listeners should know about. The first is a book you wrote with Scott Ray, who also teaches there with you at Talbot, and I had the privilege of studying with as well. The book is Body and Soul, Human Nature and the Crisis in Ethics, and it really drills into these issues we're talking about in a lot more detail. And I think it would be very helpful for anybody interested in these issues to read closely. And the second book's a little more challenging, but worth the effort. It's The Recalcitrant Imago Dei, Human Persons and the Failure of Naturalism. And it really, I think, does a great job of showing how naturalism can't answer these type of questions. Uh, but only if we understand ourselves to be a soul with intrinsic value due to bearing God's image, can we make sense of the ethical issues that we need to wrestle with in our day and age? And, and of course, so much more. So I highly recommend these to our readers. Exactly. Thank you. That's thank you. Appreciate that. I think I have a question for you, JP, but Stan, I'd like to hear what you have to say as well. So when we're talking about the, the deep unity between the substances. We're saying two substances, substance dualism, there's a deep unity. My 
my question would be, does that unity divide at death? Or, you know, as Thomas Aquinas grounded some of these things in what is now believed about relics, and that there is some portion of that saint's soul that is still belonging to those bones or that hand or uh, whatever portion of the body may be present. And there are things that are attributed as supernatural events to these parts of their body in particular. Can you explain a little bit of that? Sure. I I think that that might be a bit of a misreading uh, of Aquinas, though I think Mm. others of his day did hold what you're saying. Um, Let me clarify something. First of all, you have to distinguish a Cartesian dualist who follows Descartes from a a Thomistic Aristotelian dualist. Now, the Cartesian dualist of Descartes' day did hold what you said, that there are two different substances, and they connect through causally interacting with each other directly. So when I will for an arm to go up, mine goes up, not yours. Uh, Now, uh, today, uh, most Cartesian dualists would not say the body is a substance. They would say it's an aggregate of parts. It's just a biological machine of some kind. And so you have one substance, the soul, that is connected to this physical aggregate of parts. It doesn't rise to the level of being a substance, but it is a real thing, but it's a, it's a weaker unity. It's just a collection of parts bonded together. Uh, now, the, 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 the Thomistic view would say that the soul is what grounds and brings the body into existence. And so the soul could exist without the body, but the body can't exist without the soul. <laughs> because if the soul leaves the body, it's not a body, it's a corpse and it's changed. It's no longer a real body. But the soul is also called a substantial form. Now, this gets a little confusing, but um, if we just think of it as what brings that deeper unity to the body, then what you have is a body that is unified by the nature of the soul, but the soul can exist without the body, but not vice versa. Now, there are two views on that. Uh, One view is that we survive literally the death of our body. And so uh, at that point, I become my soul. But I am a composite of two different constituents, or we'll use the word parts, soul and body. But when I die, I am what you might call a damaged soul, because I'm lacking one of the parts I need to be a fully functioning soul. So I still continue to exist, but in a diminished kind of way. The other view is that I don't continue on after I die. My soul does. And I am not my soul. I am my soul and body. So if one of them's not there, I can't be there. So what carries on is JP's soul. Now, the good news is, according to this view, that that soul, even though it's not identical to me, it has the resources to sustain my personal identity when it's re-embodied. So when I die, I go through an intermediate state where I don't literally exist, my soul does, 
But at the final resurrection, I literally will uh, exist because that soul will com be combined with a new body and that will ground it being me. So those are two different views. And I think regarding your question, I don't think that a relic or a body part that is severed from the body would be considered a body part any longer. It would be just a collection of atoms or molecules. Now, here's the interesting question for me. If you transplant an organ like a heart into another person, and that, or that heart is sustained as a living organ, then it may well be that some of the, our personality or mental powers actually reside in the members of our body, like Paul says, you know, present the members of your body. So on that view, it could be the new person waking up with a new heart has a little bit of a tendency to do certain things that the other person did because those those mental capacities go with the heart. Now I'm not committed to that view. I don't know which way it's going to go, but that's a possibility. JP, it would be helpful if you clarified your view in comparison to the two views you just so nicely laid out. Well, I I, I have a little bit of a different view. I, I I don't think that when I'm embodied that I am identical to this whole living organism, which would be a, let's just call it, quote, a compound of soul and body, unified in some deep way. I think that I'm identical to my soul. And my body is a mode or an expression of the soul that is dependent on the soul. But since I am the soul and I have a body, then I could exist without the body, but I'm not diminished uh, in, in, some, in the way they mean, although my natural way of functioning is to be embodied. And so the final resurrection is better than the intermediate state because I will lack certain things that the body gives me an opportunity, you know, to enjoy certain kind of bodily pleasures and so on. And so... That would be my view. I'd hold a third view. Good. Thanks for that clarification. Uh, you know, Aristotle famously said, a human hand severed is no longer human. Uh, it's no longer ensouled in any way. It no longer has animus, the Greek word for soul. It's no longer animated. So this idea that relics could contain souls somehow is certainly not from Aristotle or Aquinas who followed him in this thinking. Uh, for both of them, the presence of soul makes something a human thing, and souls can't be divided up in this way. It's not just a little part of soul in this thing and in that thing. The soul is fully present everywhere. So we can say that those bones were ensouled, and in the final resurrection, if God chooses to use those same parts, they will again be ensouled, but at present, they are not, not even at a little bit. Exactly. Excellent. Excellent. That's very helpful, gentlemen. Thank you. But let me add one more thing. Good philosophy is driven often by our intuitions. You know, we observe what we just know deep down, and then we try to understand more of why that's true. We talked about this earlier in ethics, that there's some things we just know are wrong, like infanticide. But if not done carefully, we can draw out wrong implications from our intuitions. And, and yes, there's certainly this intuition 
that we are a soul that has a body and therefore that our body is in some way ensouled, which if not careful can give rise to these more superstitious ideas like believing relics still are in some way ensouled. So it's based on a proper intuition that our bodies are ensouled, that bones aren't just bones. They are more than that. They have this immaterial soul making them what they are, animating them, but it doesn't draw out the implications accurately concerning that relationship after death. I think you're right. I think that 95 to 99% of the human beings who've ever lived all over the world have known that they were souls and weren't their bodies. They were related to their bodies because in all these cultures, there was a concept of disembodied survival. Uh, It may be differently depicted, but there still was that idea. Now, the question is, where did that come from? Now, people sometimes try to say, well, it was their, their religious views that taught them that. First of all, some of the religions didn't actually hold that, though most did, but I think that's backward. Massive studies, many have shown that little children, prior to their religious doctrination or anything like that, they don't understand religious teaching, intuitively know they're their their souls. They're different from their bodies. So they don't have to be taught that. So how do we explain this? My view is that people all over the world are aware of themselves. They're simply able to be, by attending to themselves introspectively, to be aware that they are kind of a, a spiritual subject of consciousness, and they're not a collection of parts, you might say. And, and so that's where b- the belief came from. And uh, that doesn't mean there is life after death, but it does seem to give reason to think we're so, we're, our soul is not the same thing as the body. And another way I see this come out is those who deny the soul can't even themselves not talk about it. <laughs> they can't speak in ways consistent with their belief that we are just bodies which is an indication that their physicalism is suspect at best and probably false. Uh, I'd actually say certainly false because physicalism at that point becomes self-defeating. So for example, even when physicalists are trying to convince us there is no soul, they seem to be assuming a soul in the process. Famously, David Hume said, when I poke around in my consciousness, I don't find anyone there. And use that as his argument that there is no, there's nobody home. There is no soul. There's just a stream of discrete thoughts and desires and choices. But it raises the question, who's doing the poking around? It seems to assume there's a self, an I, who is the poker, (laughs) who's the one exploring the consciousness. So I invite our listeners to begin paying attention to this. How often do you hear others use words like I or me, you, they, what philosophers call indexicals? which are words that refer to persons who have properties or capacities. They, they're words that refer to souls. And so the fact that we can't avoid thinking, talking, and acting as if we are a soul who has a body is a pretty strong indication that that is the fact of the matter. And not only has a body, it has other features like emotions, desires, a history, a future. All of these are things that are had by our soul. Well, you're so right, and 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 this manifests itself in uh, uh, in fiction. Uh, if you t- if you look at science fiction movies, and uh, let's suppose that it's Star Trek, and there is uh, a being in in on the Enterprise 
that is a it's a humanoid it's a it's a machine and a zombie there's it's not conscious it doesn't have a self but it acts and behaves just like that and it's got skin so it looks like all the other real humans that are a part of the crew now if something happens to that particular humanoid somebody insults the humanoid or they get you know their hand is squashed in a vice the only way that we're drawn to care for them is if we anthropomorphically attribute to them feelings, uh, emotions, a, a self that recognizes that they have been wounded or hurt or dismissed by someone. If we literally treated them as a complicated, just a complex lamp or a chair or, or, what, or a chunk of metal that had wires in it, well, who cares? You know, I don't, I don't think I have to go to prison if I unplug my computer, you know, and so intuitively, your point is so spot on, because we attribute these features in our science fiction, to things that we are declaring don't have them. That's the only way we can muster empathy for them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Related to that is the whole idea of horror as a genre, interestingly enough. It seems the reason we find things horrific is because we know intuitively that something is fundamentally wrong with that scenario. It it gives us, to use the technical term, the willies. Uh, (laughs) Take, for instance, zombies. Uh, That's a case of a body without a soul walking around here on Earth. Uh, Or Frankenstein. Now, we just know that's not the way it ought to be. It's just a grotesque corruption of reality. Yeah. Or ghosts. Souls here on Earth without bodies. Another grotesque corruption of reality. And these worry us. They don't sit right with us. They're, they're unsettling. And we should pay attention to this intuition. It, it's our innate sense or our understanding deep down that we are a soul that has a body. That's the natural order. That's the way things are and ought to be. And if there's a thought about it being otherwise, it creeps us out. Absolutely. I agree. That is an excellent example. There are a lot of these topics that we could do entire podcasts on, and it's possible (laughs) that we will come back and talk about artificial intelligence or any of these particulars here. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. If you are like most of our listeners, you are concerned about the ideas being promoted in our universities today. We too often hear about what is false and even harmful being promoted as true. Christian professors are called to stand up for what is true, good, and just, and teach their students to do the same. Help equip Christian professors to do so at www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith Podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly. I would like to dig a little bit deeper into origins here. So we talked a little bit about how the idea of evolution in particular would lead someone to have ideas about the human that are not consistent with Christianity. 
Let's talk about that a little more. Darwin was clear that evolution is a physical process that operates on a physical object to produce another physical object that's more reproductively successful. And that's what the theory is today. And so the physical process of, of evolution would be things like mutations. Uh, and those are purely physical events, maybe ultraviolet light or something that causes a defect or some change in the DNA, which in turn produces a different, let's just say, structure of a body part uh, that, that, that allows that body part to aid the organism in survival better. And so if I take a physical process and I apply it to a purely physical object like an amphibian and, and something happens, then I might get a, a new kind of thing, but it'll be like a reptile, but it might be, it, but it will be purely physical. Just like if I take a physical process of heating and apply it to water in the liquid form, which is physical, I will generate uh, an altered physical byproduct, steam. So you can't get the immaterial from the purely physical that doesn't have any potential for the immaterial by simply rearranging its parts or doing something, putting electricity on it or whatever it is. And Darwin knew that. And so he, he, he clearly stated that if there was anything about a human being or, or, or organisms that his principle could not explain, then there would be another theory that could explain it, namely theism. And that would make his whole theory superfluous because then you would have a theistic explanation for the, the origin of new body plans and that kind of thing. So he was clear that consciousness and uh, any kind of a soul had to be reduced to the brain and its activities. That's why, unless you're a theistic evolutionist, I, I'm not something of you, but I think if you're a purely naturalistic evolutionist, you, you have to try to be a physicalist, of, a materialist of some kind. That's why. Now, we start our worldview with our fundamental entity being a mind, a spirit, uh, not particles or waves or anything like that. So, so where mind comes from is easy for us because we start with mind, but if you start with matter and the processes of history are simply the, the laws of nature, which are physical laws, you will have no explanation for consciousness. And so that is a huge problem for strict evolutionary theory. And even physicalists who are trying to be honest with the data in some cases admit as much. I'm thinking here of Thomas Nagel. Yes. In a book he wrote, published by Oxford University Press back in 2012, uh, writes this, quote, If evolutionary biology is a physical theory, as it is generally taken to be, then it cannot account for the appearance of consciousness and of other phenomena that are not physically reducible. The possibility opens up 
for making the mind central rather than a side effect of a physical law. That's in his book, Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. As he's pointing out, there's just a real problem physicalists have trying to explain the mental or the soul realities in physical terms. Things like thoughts and choices, desires, intentions, just aren't the kind of things you can get from matter. Like begets like, so material things beget material things, but not immaterial things. Yeah. Uh, another great book uh, on this is the book by Etienne Gilson, From Aristotle to Darwin and Back Again, A Journey in Final Causality, Species, and Evolution. And he does just a great job of unpacking Aristotle and Aquinas and drawing some of these implications from their thought that we've been discussing as it relates to these issues of origins. Amen. I agree. People need to realize, too, by the way, that these ancient thinkers aren't just, oh, these old anachronistic figures that were important, but we study them out of purely historical interest. Their thought is making a comeback. Even in biology, there is a growing number of what are called organicists that are actually a taking a Thomistic Aristotelian view and, and doing biology within that framework. And some of them are non-Christians. You need to keep in mind that these thinkers are still relevant to what's going on today. So to summarize, what I think we're both saying is, even if evolution is true, it doesn't say anything about the soul and who we are, which is the, the really important issue here. Only if we are only or primarily a body is evolution the central issue. Of course, there are other implications, and it's it's important to study issues of origins. But the important issue in terms of what are we is not origin of the body, but origin of the soul, which doesn't come through natural processes by definition. Right, right. It seems interesting to me that individuals struggle with this so deeply because our culture has no, no good answer for us collectively. And so the burden falls to the individual to find out, you know, what am I? And that can cause a significant amount of anxiety and difficulty in navigating the world if you don't understand the appropriate end of the kind of being you are. That can make it difficult. Oh, you're you're right. In fact, there is a book that I read 10 years ago or so that was written by a, a couple of uh, well-known secular professional psychologists And they were talking about the epidemic of anxiety today. And they said there are fundamentally, there are a lot of reasons, but there are three at the bottom that are cultural problems that are responsible for this happening all over American society. And one of them was uh, inordinate individualism. The other one was uh, the rapid pace of our lives. The third one was moral relativism. Now, they said, why? Well, People have lost confidence that there is a correct, knowable answer to questions about how should I live in a healthy kind of way? And as a result, there is no answer to that. And so you're left with making up whatever answer is, quote, true to you. But that creates a tremendous amount of anxiety if it's up to me to create the right answer. Uh, I'm not, I know I'm not capable of doing that. I want an answer that's really true and real. You're making that point about what we are, which is even deeper. 
So you're right. Uh, the end result of that uh, kind of shift is that we're left on our own to create our own story. And, and, and that is highly anxiety producing. And there's evidence that that's the case. Absolutely. And also, then we feel the burden of responsibility for any decisions we did make. So the, the power of regret and shame later, feeling that we did not make the correct decisions regarding our own happiness, even. It's a very difficult time to be a human being. And I think Christianity has the, the idea of happiness in God is just a much better a much more hopeful, a, a wonderful way to live life. I, as I have lived this through, it's become clear to me that it is, the burden is lighter. Absolutely. No question about it. Mm-hmm. JP, I'd like to ask you one more question. And that is just, if you could give us kind of the best objections you've heard to substance dualism. Well, uh, Uh, The best objection would be maybe the problem of causal interaction. I mean, how can two such radically different things interact with one another? And if they do, doesn't that violate the law of the conservation of energy? Because it looks like if the soul moves the body, then it's going to create a little bit of energy to do that. And and that seems to violate the fact that energy is neither created nor destroyed. I think the the other one is roughly that science is alleged to kind of made have made the soul useless. We don't really need that anymore because we realize now the brain is what's doing everything. None of these arguments are really very good. If it, If you want to know what it really comes down to is this. Here's the premise of the argument. All my smart friends are materialists. Therefore, materialism is true. That's that's the real argument. And there's actually another premise in there, something like, and I want to be accepted by all my smart friends. And therefore, materialism is true. Sorry, that's right. That's right. Let me give you another argument against dualism. It's it's very popular, uh, including in many seminaries these days, even evangelical seminaries. And it's more of a biblical or a theological argument against dualism. Uh, The argument goes something like this. Uh, The Old Testament authors say that we are a unity. This idea of substance dualism is actually a Greek idea that has been imported or read into the text, but it's not what the biblical authors intended. And so we should reject this idea of dualism and re-embrace this biblical notion of a person as a unity, as one, not a duality. I hear this all the time. It's very persuasive, and it it actually has some force in it since the Old Testament authors do talk about the person as a unity. But that's consistent not only with monism, the idea that we are one thing, but it's also consistent with Thomistic dualism. Uh, On the Thomistic view, there's this very, very deep relationship between our soul and our body, so much so that we really do function as one. Uh, Let me recommend a great book that I think does the best job of responding to this objection. It's a very detailed analysis of the Old Testament texts, and he concludes the authors are not teaching uh, monism, that we are one thing, but that we are a duality, that they are teaching substance dualism. It's a book titled Body, Soul, and Life Everlasting, 
Biblical Anthropology and the Monism Dualism Debate. It's by John W. Cooper. Uh, he does just such a good job of not only walking through the Old Testament and showing how substance dualism is, is assumed, but also then tracing that throughout the New Testament. For instance, when Paul says things like, it's better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, it really, I think, should lay this debate to rest. I read that book. It is an excellent book, and I understood 17% of it tops. Well, and I was feeling pretty good about that. Let me yeah. just tell you. Yeah. It's an excellent book. And uh, I'd love to hear the argument that came up against it. Yeah. But I, I don't think any have been adequate. No, they haven't. Well, JP, I'd like to check my assessment against what you experience. You teach in an evangelical seminary and you know a lot of other folks who do as well. Would you say my assessment is accurate in terms of this becoming the, the dominant view in seminaries these days? Yes, you're right. Uh, that That is kind of more and more the standard view. What The problem is that people who are educated in, in, in doctoral programs and older New Testament or theology don't have enough philosophical training, which they used to get, to, to, to help them understand what's going on. And here's how that applies. People who are adopting this holistic view and want to avoid dualism think that dualism is the same thing as platonic dualism, that if you're a dualist, you hold Plato's view. Yeah. So N.T. Wright, scholar as he is, has, has written all over his writings that when you die, we exist in a disembodied intermediate state and we will be re-embodied at the final resurrection. That's his view. He calls it life after life after death. There's death, life after death, and disembodied, and then life after that. But then he says in this paper that's widely known, that he read at Fordham University, the Bible knows absolutely nothing of substance dualism. It's contrary to Christianity, and it needs to be rejected. And so you're scratching your head, and, and, and you, then you go deeper, and he's identifying substance dualism with Plato. The body is evil. We exist forever on our own steam without God needing to sustain us. Work is not, as, not valuable. Well, yeah, but, but you know, there are all kinds of different mm -hmm. substance dualisms besides Plato. And if he had just known that, he wouldn't have embarrassed himself. I think that that's what happens to so many biblical scholars is they rightly want to get rid of platonic dualism, though not all of it was bad, but so, some of it was. Mm -hmm. And so they think that that's the same thing as substance dualism as a general view. And that's, that's, just, a, that's just a freshman mistake. Baby in the bathwater on that one. Baby in the bathwater. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I see similar errors in the writings of people like Nancy Murphy. And though she's trained as a professor at Fuller Seminary, who want to take us the next step to a Christian physicalism where there is no soul, we're just a body, uh, or better we're, better, we're just a brain. Right. And then to argue that that's the biblical view. No, that's where it goes. And again, I see these positions driven by people seeing problems with a Cartesian view of dualism and assuming that therefore no form of dualism can be true without even considering or maybe not even being aware of Thomistic dualism, much less giving reasons to reject a Thomistic version. No, I'm with you 100%.
All right. Well, we have come to the end of our time, gentlemen. I would like to tease just a little bit our next episode. JP, would you tell us just a little bit about the book that's coming out? We're so excited. Yes, I have uh, been able to author a number of books, but I've never been more excited about a book than this one. And it's it's called A Simple Guide to Experience Miracles. And the next time we're together, I'm going to lay out what I believe are five kinds of miracles that are happening all around us today. And I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to give you an, uh, some teaching on how to tell the difference between a coincidence and a real miracle or answer to prayer. And uh, e- my purpose is to help foster my brothers and sisters to be more supernatural. Mm-hmm. I don't have to become charismatic. I don't want to even talk about that. I want to talk about the kingdom of God, not get spiritual gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ground this in the power of the kingdom. And I just, I think that that's important for us to reconsider that maybe we've been naturalized a little bit. And that, so that's the purpose. And it's going to be a fun time. Mm, oh, I can't wait. I love the idea of re-enchanting our everyday lives. And that is a really excellent place to start. You got it. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith, seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.